Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, January 19th. It's the last weekend of the National Western Stock Show and as tradition serves, we had some freezing <laughs> stock show weather this week here in Denver, but our panel is thought out and ready to go. So let me say welcome to Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, Krista Kafer, columnist with the Denver Post, Eric Sonderman, columnist for Colorado Politics and the Colorado Springs and Denver Gazettes, and also Penfold Tate, attorney with, the, with his law firm here in Denver, but also former Colorado House rep and Colorado State rep. Let's start off in Denver, which is in a quagmire, with the continuous flow of migrants into the city, the realities that the cost will affect the budget and how the city operates, and in a few weeks, the city is going to go back to kicking migrants, including some families, out of the shelters, Patty, if they've stayed past their allotted time. Well, and let's, let's be specific. The time is 14 days for a single man or individual, and it's elevated from 37 to 41 days for families. So that is a fair amount of time if the goal is to get them out and into a realistic housing situation. You know, on Thursday, uh, Mike Johnston was in D.C. with members of the Colorado delegation, Senators Hickenlooper and Bennett, Brittany Peterson, and they were talking about the prob problems with the migrant influx here in Colorado. Denver has seen, what, like almost five times as many as most inland cities. It's just extraordinary, and fortunately, Mike Johnston was geared up at least to deal with homeless, so he knows what the assets are for shelter. But this has just aggravated it so much. Over 37,000 migrants have come in. Many have moved on, but there were still 5,000 migrants that needed shelter during those very, very cold days. And now what they really need is work. So I would like to see Jared Polis step up, who didn't talk about it in the state of the state, and say, challenge the federal government too, and say, we are going to allow these people to work in Colorado legally within the next month if you don't do anything. These people want to work, and that makes a big difference because Colorado has jobs for them. Mm -hmm. Krista? Well, when it comes to stepping up, we really need to see Congress step up because right now they've got a deal that they, they'd like to do, but they, I guess the far right and the far left don't particularly like it where there's, there's funding for Ukraine. There's also some changes in the rules about how we deal with the border because right now when people come, they, they take a test of sort of credible fear. Are you an asylee? Do you really fit that definition? And that definition is so loose that the vast majority of people who are given that test are allowed through. Some of those folks are genuine asylees. Um, I've known asylees, people who are fleeing in fear that need to come here and they need to find refuge here. There are also a number of people that are in that group that um, are economic migrants and they don't need to come through the border that way because what it's doing is it's overwhelming our system and these people are being uh, shipped up north to, to, to you know, Colorado to Denver, also to Chicago and other places. Obviously, the southern border states can't take the full brunt, so they bring people up here. And um, again, some of these are asylees, people that need our help. Other people are economic migrants and should not be here. So tightening those rules up are important. I know there are incentives on both the far left and the far right to say no to those, you know, no to those changes and to say, oh, we're just going to deal with the, 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 the status quo because it suits our, our political purposes. But we really need our members of Congress in Colorado to step up and make those changes. I also think they need to revisit the remain in Mexico policy because if you think about it, yeah, that does burden Mexico more, but it's warmer there. No one's going to get frostbite waiting uh, for their asylee application if they're in Mexico. Here, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. Eric? 
Well, the numbers are just astounding. Uh, the total number of migrants who have come through Denver, and as Patty pointed out, they certainly haven't all stayed, many have moved on, but it's tantamount or equal to 5% of the population of the city and county of Denver. When you have those kinds of numbers, obviously the cost factor is astounding as well, and it's not a cost that the taxpayers of Denver can or should bear on any kind of a sustained basis. I divide this issue sort of into the macro and the micro. On the micro level, these are individuals, and yes, not all are asylees, and, and uh, you know, you should be here legally at the end of the day, but these are people with stories who have endured incredible hardship to get here. They deserve our compassion. They deserve more than our compassion. They deserve whatever we can do for them, but that's on a micro level. They're individual stories. On a macro level, a country needs to enforce its borders. A country needs to have control of its borders. And Krista is dead on right in terms of talking about the hard left and the hard right, neither one of which really want any kind of logical or sensible deal. The hard right wants this issue. They prefer to have the issue than a solution because they think it works to their benefit come November. Uh, and the hard left, there are elements of that left that really don't believe in borders. They think they somehow violate social justice. They think our carrying capacity is unlimited, that our checkbook is unlimited, uh, and that these people will also change the po political dynamics of this country over the long haul. It is time for some common sense middle to speak up and come to some kind of a solution here because the status quo is unsustainable. It is unsustainable. Ken. You know, I agree with much of what's been said. Um, the micro is a consequence of the failure of the macro, to use some of the terminology. Um, my grandpa was an immigrant. He was what they called a permanent resident alien. He immigrated to the U.S. to go to college and married, raised family, ran a business and stayed here the rest of his life, and three of his sons served in the U.S. military. Um, so we've always had immigrants come into this country. For a long time, we had a system to accommodate that. The political vitriol now has destroyed the ability to have a coherent system, to have an orderly way to have people come into the country, work in the country, and stay in the country. Immigration is inevitable and unavoidable because with the birth rate here in the U.S., we need people to come here to work. Last I checked, there weren't a lot of high school students applying to be, you know, uh, domestics in hotels or to be roofers um, or a host of other occupations. And we have a shortage of people in very skilled fields like doctors, physicians, and others who can come from other countries already credentialed, but we don't allow them to exercise and practice in their field. We've got to change immigration. It requires an overhaul. And we're going to keep getting distracted on the micro level. Should Colorado and other states sue Texas? Probably, just to make a point. Should the government, the feds, talk to Texas about, sometimes it's easier to address an issue if you can localize it, confine it, triage it at the point of, of origin, and then go from there. But Texas and Florida are making that impossible by just putting people on buses and sending them wherever willy-nilly. So at the end of the day, we need the macro fix to address the micro problem. Because we've got to, they're people. We've got to help people survive. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say one other thing, which is right now city departments are looking at a 10 to 15% cut 
in order to afford the migrant services. So what we don't want is Denver, which has always been a compassionate city, to suddenly have its residents worried about cutbacks in city service because we're helping them. And that exacerbates the, the vitriol at the political level and it's a legitimate. If you're a resident and taxpayer and your services get reduced because the city's got to spend, what, $180 million to deal with the immigrant crisis, I think you have a legitimate beef to be concerned. It's not an answer, but it's a legitimate beef that you get to voice. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was a short week for the 2024 Colorado Legislature because of Monday's Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and then the cold weather Tuesday. Krista, let's talk about how things are going for our lawmakers. I would love it for it to be a short week every week. Yeah. And in fact, how about a short term? You know what, I'm thinking, <laughs> give them a couple of days and let's just wrap this up. I'm looking at a list of things like, like let's get rid of uh, or reduce our Tabor refunds, essentially raise taxes, that's, that's in order. Um, Let's uh, uh, mandate that schools call kids, not by their real name, but by their preferred name, even if the parent doesn't want that. Even if the parent is saying, I have a troubled child, a confused child, we're working with that child to accept their body, to accept their life, and um, we really want the school to affirm what we're doing and what their therapist is doing by calling them their real name and, and their real pronouns, and you have the school going behind the parent's back because of this law, should it pass, um, that is deeply unfair to that child, deeply unfair to the school if they want to do uh, the right thing and call the child by their real name, and deeply unfair to parents and the parents who are taxpayers as well. So we've got that. Um, we've got uh, legislation, again, to have uh, heroin uh, injection sites, people to use illegal drugs. Um, I realize that it's done... Uh, uh, out of goodwill, a desire to mitigate risk and, and ensure that people have uh, at their disposal uh, Narcan and other things should they overdose. But we also have to think about the people who live in that area, and we also have to think about the line between helping and enabling. And I'm, I'm concerned that if we're allowing legalized drugs, we are actually empowering the addiction we are empowering the drug dealer, and we are hurting the individual who really needs to give that substance up. Eric, your thoughts? Well, there's enough heat and fire around the state capitol that one would think they could have managed to perhaps work even when it was a frigid day outside. Uh, Krista nailed some of the low lights. I would add to that the fact that there's yet to be a censure of Elizabeth Epps for her conduct. Uh, back during the special session in November. Yes, Speaker Julie McCluskey sent her a strong letter of reprimand, but I gotta say, if the shoe was on the other foot and that was a Republican legislator who behaved as Elizabeth Epps did, the Democrats would not settle for a letter of reprimand. They would want something stronger. If there's ever been a situation that deserved a formal censure by the whole body, Ms. Epps provided uh, that situation in terms of silliness. Uh, Krista nailed some of the gender stuff, and gender issues are important, but they don't deserve the kind of dominance they've taken on in the first week of the session. In addition to what Chris decided, there is a bill to make it uh, possible for felons to change their name and change their listing by gender uh, within the correction system. We can debate the merits of that, whether that rises to the top of the state's critical list of priorities. You can color me dubious. And then I would just get to 
back to our previous issue of migrants, uh, where's our governor been on this issue? This is a crisis throughout the state. It is not just Denver. You've read the stories out of Carbondale. Our governor has been missing in action on this issue. If he would be half as focused on this issue as he has been on wolves, uh, we would be all a lot better off. Mm -hmm. You know, when I served, uh, my constituents used to ask me, how are things going at the legislature? And I'd always say, eh, some days are better than others. <laughs> and, but what I could almost without exception say is it was extremely rare where someone was personally, another elected member, rude or offensive in dealing with me. What really bothers me is the loss of civility. Um, and the loss of civility on both the federal level and the local level, what it does is it impedes your ability to deal with substantive issues because everybody gets personally offended, they get pissed off, they run to their corners, and then they start throwing stuff at each other, and then it just descends into chaos. Um, when, when I was in the minority in the House, we would argue things on the issue I used to say, we won every argument, we just lost every vote uh, because of the numbers. But we never said read the bill at length just because we wanted to drag it out and delay it because inevitably you have to deal with the issue. So our approach was always, let's deal with the issue, we're gonna lose a vote, hopefully we can talk Romer into vetoing something, and if not, we can figure out another way to get around it. All of it reflects a lack of respect for the institution, the process, and the whole purpose of governing, which is to support the people of the state of Colorado. And that troubles me. Mm -hmm. Well, after the heat of the first week, and there was plenty of it in the legislature, I think they're still a little frozen after the Martin Luther King um, deep freeze. They're a little chill this week, but we still see the ramifications of what happened that first week. Certainly the state of the state speech, we have the concern about Polis not mentioning migrants. You also have Polis having put out the emergency declaration because of the cold coming, talking about shelters and other things where rural lawmakers and other rural residents were offended because they once again feel that they are being left out. And that has been a recurring theme dating from wolves and other issues, and it's going to keep popping up in this legislative session. Uh, the issue of taxes, which was fascinating in the state of the state, when Polis said our taxes are too high, we should be cutting them. So that was certainly not something the rest of the Democratic Party thought they would hear during the state of the state. He got some applause from un unlikely places, the right. So it's going to be a very interesting session, but this week is kind of chill, but the same themes. People are not being civil. We're going to have to deal with affordable housing. We will keep hearing that through the session. Mm -hmm. Even before Donald Trump walked away from the Iowa caucuses with a victory on Tuesday night, the Colorado GOP went ahead, Eric, and endorsed Donald Trump ahead of our primary here in Colorado in March. Indeed they did. The level of hypocrisy, and I don't want to accuse all Republicans of this because I think most Republicans shake their head in amazement and disdain at those who call themselves the Colorado Republican Party, the chair and the central committee and all the rest. But the level of hypocrisy in this party is really just stunning. You have Lauren Boebert, who keeps talking about the swamp in Washington, but now is moving across the state to a new congressional district to try to carpet bag there in order to stay part of the swamp that she so laments. 
And then you got Dave Williams, or as I call him, I really, really, really badly need a paycheck, Dave Williams, uh, who is using all the power, such as it is, of being the state party chair to try to load the dice in his favor in terms of his run for Congress down in Colorado Springs in Congressional District 5. Completely inappropriate. The only thing these people and the leaders of this party have in common is a conviction that the ends justify any means, and they're completely out of proportion in that regard. The level of lunacy, I think you can trace, you know, it goes to Iowa as well. If you look at polls of people who attended these caucuses, 65% of caucus attendees regard Joe Biden as an illegitimate president not as a bad president or a failed president or any of the rest, which is fair discussion, but as an illegitimate president. And if you take the number of those caucus attendees who caucused for Trump, that 65% number becomes 90%. It's crazy land. Mm. You know, we've been talking about sort of the dysfunction of the political and government system, and this just further illustrates it. Um, you've got a party that's already fractured to begin with. We have a primary in our state, but the party has decided to endorse one of the candidates who's going to be involved in the primary who didn't win the primary before. I think Ted Cruz won the Republican primary the last time it was done. Um, it, and then you ask yourself, well, why do people like Ken Buck and Doug Lamborn say, I'm done? <laughs> It's because they respect the institution of government and the process and what it stands for and the shenanigans, I suspect, are getting on both of their nerves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't understand the state party doing this and preempting their own primary. Uh, and I will finally add one of our colleagues here and um, the former majority leader I served with, Norma Anderson, are Republicans who have finally said enough is enough, and they're challenging President Trump's right to be on the ballot under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take that up. That's what we need, is people with good intentions and a commitment to our system of government to say enough's enough. His name will be on the ballot. And I'm curious, didn't you have to, if you're a Republican candidate, pay the party like $40,000 to get on the Colorado ballot? So now... Shouldn't they get refunds? It's, <laughs> I mean, hey, right? it's the only money coming into that party. Yeah. Patty, your thoughts? Uh, in addition to civility, which political figures need a, re, a lesson in, how about a lesson in conflicts of interest? Dave Williams, let go, Brandon, is what we should call him now. Dave Williams has no business running in the fifth and running in the Colorado Repub and running the Colorado Republican Party. At least when Ken Buck was a candidate, he was unopposed when he ran the party. So that's a huge conflict of interest. It just shows how bereft this small group that runs the Colorado Repub Republican Party is of morals. And Let's also point out if indeed their chosen candidate, you know, is going to win the primary, what happens if the U.S. Supreme Court determines that under Colorado law agrees with Colorado Supreme Court and Donald Trump cannot be on the Colorado ballot, who wins? I, I think everyone loses in this scenario. And because everybody's used up all the really good adjectives like bereft of morality and nut job and, and, and the ones that Eric used. I'll go a slightly different route. Um, 
every election, you know, sometimes we have people that we want to vote for, and then sometimes there's the whole lesser of two evils thing, right? Where you've got, I've got Republican friends, I, I don't agree with it, but they'll be voting for Trump because they think he's better than Biden. I have friends that are Democrats that are voting for Biden because they think he's better than Trump, and they, you know, they're, they're thinking about policies, they're thinking of the lesser of two evils, they're not enthusiastic. And that's what happens in a binary choice. Um, you've got people like me who would likely set that out, but a lot of people feel like they need to vote for one or the other, the lesser of two evils. In this case, though, the primary, we had three other people, Hutchinson, who's now out, we've got uh, uh, um, DeSantis and also Haley, and three competent governors in addition to, to Trump. And none of those governors have ever been indicted, have ever engaged in insurrection, have ever tried to overturn an election, have never been convicted by a jury of assaulting a woman, um, have never done these things. They're still on that ballot. So why is the Republican Party in this state saying, no, 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 not those guys, not the unindicted crowd. Um, let, let's go with this guy instead, and we're going to put our, our voice behind it. And should it surprise you? I mean, if you look into their website, um, other than trying to raise money, the first thing that like pops up is the glowering picture of Donald Trump at his uh, when he turned himself in, his mugshot. Um, it was clear from the beginning that this was their man. Um, and that they were not interested in facilitating a free and open primary. So all I can say is, uh, Dave, let's go, Brandon Williams, shame on you. You know, that's what happened when you have people invested in the system who basically only want out of it specific things and they don't care about anybody else or anything else. Dave Williams knows what he wants, and, and endorsing Trump is, he feels, going to help him get there. It doesn't matter if he's got a commitment to a party to run the party fairly and equitably and openly. doesn't matter if he's got an obligation to other candidates of the party who have a right to be heard and considered. Um, he just knows what he wants. And there are too many people now who think that way, and what's really scary is they think it's okay to think that way and behave that way. So long as I'm getting what I want, to heck with everybody else. And, and that's the real frightening part of all of this. And I think that's why it keeps perpetuating and growing. Mm -hmm. Foster care in Colorado is gaining the spotlight. With the release of the documentary, Rebecoming Me, as well as a report from Common Sense Institute. Currently, Colorado has 3,600 children living with foster families, and that's multiple families. There's a lot of moving around in these children's lives. And when they're out of the system, quite often their futures are rather bleak. Um, let's talk about this, starting with you, Penn. You know, the report was, was eye-opening and frightening uh, all at the same time. To, to see that you have, on average, you know, 5,200 kids in the foster system and, and uh, a number of them age out and others come in. And when you age out, it's when you turn 18. And it's kind of like being pushed out the front door of your house and you're on your own all of a sudden. Um, only 30% of them are high school graduates, so their ability to be self-sustaining gets impacted. The young ladies who are in the system, once they age out, they're 10 times more likely to become um, parents uh, than the rest of women um, in society. And, you know, it's, it's not right. Uh, uh, this is a system that we're supporting with tax dollars, and it's failing society, and it's failing all of these kids and all of these people who I would argue we have a responsibility to 
help at least put them on a path where they can become self-sufficient and successful. When I saw the documentary and, and heard the story of the one guy who spent 11 days in jail because he was 11 minutes late getting home from a curfew imposed by his foster dad, I'm like, this is nuts. Um, I would dare say a few people around this table probably busted curfew a few times when they were growing up. I never thought my parents would send me to jail for showing up late, but that just shows the degree of dysfunction in the system. So I hope the documentary, I hope the report, um, and the, the economic cost of the report in the tens of millions of dollars really prompts the legislature to begin to take some action, or maybe the governor will take a lead on this and begin to say we've got to overhaul this system also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Patty? Well, and of course the shame is what happens even before you get into the dysfunctional foster care system. The legislature is looking at redefining the child abuse, making it more specific. I mean, poverty is one of the things thrown in there. You really need to know what the problems are that you are trying to fix when you send kids into the foster system. But let's also look at making sure every child who is born in Colorado is wanted and that parents can handle them rather than create the chaos that leads to those children going to foster care. When we're coming up with the celebrate the anniversaries of Roe v. Wade, when we're looking at new legislation, new proposals for the ballot regarding choice, let's remember children need to be taken care of from the start. When they are born, they should be wanted, parents should be educated, so the problems are not just in foster care. Mm -hmm. Krista? But when we're talking about unwanted children, whether they're unwanted in the womb or unwanted after birth or whether they're neglected or abused, I would argue that we need to care for all of them. Um, I know a lot of people, actually, who were unwanted at some point in their life. Um, what kinds of structures do we put together that will allow them to best survive, thrive? Um, we work with individual families. Sometimes that, that works very well. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, sometimes people end up going from family to family to family. Back when we had more of an institutional care model, um, that had disadvantages as well, particularly if you had you know, evil people working there that did terrible things. But you could also perhaps have a little bit more oversight as well as a little more continuity. The report found that kids, they maybe been in four different high schools, right? There's no stability there. One of the things that the report wanted us to look at is education savings accounts. Um, there are states that have foster care or uh, vouchers for va foster care kids so that they may remain at one school the entire time um, and get the specialized care that a private school can provide. So I, I, think, I think that's one thing to look at. I, I think also just looking at the model of is there a, another way to care for these kids so that they at least have stability and that through that stability might do better once they're on their feet. Absolutely. I mean, these, you'd look at the number 3,600 of foster kids in the state, and that is a statistic, but big numbers tend to be stats. You need to break it down to the individual person. And for so many of that 3,600 and others who will come after them and others who came before them, these are human tragedies. There's no way to watch this film, Rebecoming Me, or to read the report from Common Sense Institute with any emotion other than just that of sadness. Yes, there can be anger accompanied it and hopefully some commitment to fix it and get this system right, but it is all 
grounded in sadness. Huge hats off to Rachel Farha, who happens to be the producer of this show, Colorado Inside Out, on PBS 12, who also was the producer of this movie. Shout out as well to John Farnham and the folks at Common Sense Institute for a, a very sobering report. But uh, this is not good enough. It's not good enough in any state, and it is certainly not good enough in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, now it is time to uh, shift and go through the highs and the lows of this week. According to our panel, we'll start on the low note, Patty. Well, last year, Taste of Colorado, we remember you were shocked at this table when I told you it was dead for the year. Taste of Colorado was kind of morphed into Viva Streets, which we just learned is being canceled this year. Let's bring back Taste of Colorado. If you want to bring back downtown, remind people of the fun reasons to go there. Was it canceled because of attendance? There are many different versions of why it was canceled, which we will discuss at another show. Okay, we will. All right. I don't know if the shame of the week should go to Ian Silveri for taking the contract or for the Jeffco commissioners for offering a $360,000 contract to the husband of Congresswoman Peterson um, to try to debruce the district, that is, take away Tabor refunds from that district. The whole thing is kind of, you know, friends helping friends to, like, screw over taxpayers. So I'm, I'm thinking there's some problems on multiple levels. Okay. I'm going to go in a different direction and go on the federal level. Our debt, the amount of money we owe to bankers and others, has now surpassed $34 trillion. That's trillion with a T. We are, particularly with higher interest rates as a country, paying $730 billion a year just in servicing that debt, just in interest payments. And we can have discussions, policy discussions, about taxing the rich, the ultra-rich more. But as was pointed out this week, you could confiscate every dollar owned by the Jeff Bezoses and Mark Zuckerbergs and Mark Cubans and Bill Gateses of the world, and you would not even pay the interest on that debt. This will not end well. Well, that's really depressing. Penfield. Didn't we have a president some years ago that eliminated the debt? Okay, I was the just... The deficit. That's <laughs> it. No, just saying. Just remember. Um, well, um, House Minority Leader Lynch, um, who is running for Congress, I think, Krista, based on what you described before, maybe you've got to get some street cred in order to be able to run for office um, in the party. So <laughs> running around... <laughs> <laughs> loaded and <laughs> strapped with a pistol in your car and not telling people, maybe that's a way to get the street cred so you're a viable congressional candidate. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> All right, let's end on a positive note. Well, let's remember, this has been a launching pad for other politicians. Tom Tancredo, Congress. Krista. This table straight to Congress. So there you go, Krista. Come on, Krista. <laughs> the end of the na National Western Stock Show. It's been a great run. It goes through Sunday. Get out there if you can. And let's see what we can do to make the facilities year-round. And in fact, maybe throw a migrant shelter into the Coliseum the way it was used during COVID so that we can actually get these people in a place where they will have services. I don't know how effective they're going to be, but I do appreciate that the, uh, the both the Democrat and uh, Republican leaders in our General Assembly have committed to trying to have a uh, to have better decorum and to keep things civil over the next session. So kudos to them. Let's hope. 
uh, living for the most part these days up in Grand County in the mountains. It's been a wild week up there. The amount of snow which we've received in the last four or five days. I know Denver had the supreme frigid cold, but the amount of snow we have is really astounding. Birth had passed now open, was closed for the longest time that anyone can remember. And I talked to people who've lived up there like 50 years. No one can remember it being closed for three or four days. Kudos to the highway workers who finally got it open amidst that volume of snow and to all the travelers who took the long way around. And it was, a, it was an ugly, ugly trip. You know for sure. I do know. <laughs> well, you know, as an aside, big ups to Mother Nature. Snow means water in August, that's so that's all good. Um, it was very cold this week, but I remain heartened that 250 of us showed up for the MLK Marade um, in below zero temperature. Former State Representative Wilma Webb was there in the cold and spoke and addressed the crowd, as well as a chunk of our congressional delegation. And I, it sort of lifts your spirits to see that even weather like that won't dampen the enthusiasm of people to come out and celebrate someone who did so much for our country. It was a great MLK day. It was great. With all the tough issues and partisanship that started 2024, I want to recognize four examples of greatness. I'll be quick. The people who carved, got their shovels out and got those people out of the avalanche at Bertha Pass who their cars were buried. Number two, the people like Penfield who braved the cold on Monday to walk in the MLK Marade. And then also the young kids, the ag kids who are out there at the stock show worked so hard with their animals and this week was a big deal for them to show, the last couple weeks a big deal for showing. And then the Colorado woman who lost her mom to cancer at 17, went to the Air Force Academy, made Dean's List every semester, earned the title of second lieutenant, and then Madison Marsh became the first ever active duty service member to be named Miss America. There is a whole lot of good here in Colorado. We cannot forget that. Thank you, panel, for coming this week. Thanks for the discussion. Thanks for you watching at home or listening on our podcast. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.